0: Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the reconciliation march of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation, we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present, and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So hello everyone and welcome to this edition of the UX Australia Podcast. We are joined today by Ben Kral. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm really well thanks Steve, how are you?
0: Good. Now, you're joining us from Brisbane, not from sunny Brisbane, but from Brisbane. How are things there at the moment? Overcast
1: Brisbane today, but um, can't complain, coming to you from my house on the north side. So, very comfortable here.
0: <laughs> now, conditions in Brisbane are relatively relaxed as far as the pandemic goes?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no cases recently. We had a lockdown. A snap lockdown a few weeks ago, when mm-hmm. they they had some hotel quarantine things escape, but um, nothing substantial. I think most of the cases they're checking out are, are ones they know about um, things that are people in quarantine who are then being found to be actually you know have it.
0: Excellent. Okay. So now you yep. will be speaking at Design Research in about five weeks' time. Um. Tell us what you're going to be talking about, because this is this is a fun one for me. <laughs> um,
1: so I think the title that is on the site is Maths for Design Researchers, um, which I actually got from you from a, a throwaway comment that you made at some point, Steve, I think in, in something you were saying where I'm sure you said, designers need to know more maths. Designers need to be more comfortable with maths. And um,
0: fully I'll throw
1: you in the that deep that- end and... And reveal that
0: you were or you are a
1: mathematician.
0: I am. So. <laughs> yeah. that's that's That was um, my first degree. My first degree was in applied mathematics and applied statistics. Um, and I, I, I will confess that I have at times stood in front of an audience of designers and, and spoken about um, statistics and, and quantitative analysis. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that somebody else is going to have a crack at it. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, so, you know, at, at school, I was someone who didn't mind maths. I didn't do the hardest maths. I th- There's a ceiling, I think, in my mathematical ability where I I can't cope with imaginary numbers and matrix multiplication. And we've already lost half the audience saying those words. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I studied computer science for my first degree. And so okay. we had to do, to pass that, um, Calculus stats, Mm -hmm. real, quote marks, logic through the math school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then programming is really applied calculus anyway. Uh, So I had to be comfortable with that. And now as a designer and design researcher, we get a lot of traction with clients by saying to them, we can do things with numbers for you as well as talking to 10, 20, 30, 50, however many people. Mm. Uh, And so the talk is really about, or what I want to talk about is why are so many designers not comfortable with that? Um, And I have some opinions. Yep. And then I have some advice. (laughs) Good. Um, (laughs) So... one reason I think maybe a lot of people who are designers or designers who are uncomfortable with maths is because you fall into design as someone who in your early education people go or you decide you're not good at maths yes. and you find something else to do yes. that that you are good at and so you you anchor there instead of on maths, um, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh and, um, but as designers trying to talk to businesses, yes, people who end up in business and end up in as decision makers in business, they've probably done some uh, mid to high level maths in mm-hmm. their study. Mm-hmm. If, you, if they've got an MBA, they've potentially done more advanced statistics through that MBA. And then they've done all the accounting and economics in that. So they have learned to trust numbers as a, a way for them to make decisions. And as design researchers, if we come in and say, I talked to 10 people and we can tell you how to spend $20 million, there's a disconnect in in what you're telling them and how their preferred way or their learned way of understanding how decisions get made and comes I think, together.
0: I, I think there's, there's an interesting point there around the fact that they are comfortable with and confident in the use of numbers to make decisions. I think that's a really key point. It's not that they're necessarily good at maths. It's not that they're necessarily, but, but they're not, they're not afraid of dealing with numbers. They're not afraid of dealing with um, graphs and you know um, numbers with decimal points and percentage signs and, and a whole variety of other things. It's yeah. it, it's it's fine to make a decision on the basis of numerical information.
1: Yeah, and it uh, if you've ever tried to present qualitative work to. Um, two clients and I know you're a mathematician with an anthropology degree (laughs) Um, my postgraduate is in sociology of technology so I'm really happy to talk to five or ten people and I believe I knew that and tell a company how to spend 20 million dollars sure because of that decision making framework that is is more established Mm -hmm. most people aren't and so it's we use, or I, my team and I use numerical approaches mm-hmm. to give us a warrant to talk about qualitative things yeah. or to um, give, find a way to, to make some numbers and then have to explain those numbers because you go, here is a number. And the clients are like, well, but what does it mean? And it's like, well, good thing we talked to some of your customers too, because here's why, here's what that number means. Yeah. And one of the things that designers are less good at than, than other people from other intellectual traditions is being able to tell a story about the numbers and to know why a particular number is better than another kind of number. And at the same time, you don't want to go and do uh, a five hundred person survey to to prove that your design is is good. So fortunately, there are statistical methods you can do that are really quite easy um, that let you do small sample size research yep. that you can be confident in and you know confident is the the shibboleth because we talk about confidence intervals yes capital c confidence intervals and um do you know where steve the students t confidence calculation was established tell us ben it was established at the guinness brewery in the late uh 1700s steve because it turns out that Brewing beer is a process where you have lots of different things and you want to control the variability of each batch. And so calculating a confidence interval means that you don't – as much as you would like to, perhaps you don't have to um, have a pint batch, yes. of each barrel sure. of Guinness. Surely
0: that's a better way of doing yeah. it. Let's just sample each
1: batch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's where that comes from. Nice. Um, and so that's there's a good story in that too. So when if if clients are less than familiar with mm. why are you doing this thing, yeah. then there's a nice little story to anchor them on like, oh, this is long established mathematics. It's 250 odd years old. It comes from this thing that you remember the story, mm-hmm. but it's also about this, this variability. And it's like, we're not trying to say that every customer is the same. We need a way to sense something from each customer and then use a very small number of customers to say something about the potential of all of your customers saying that same thing or having a, a response within the bounds that we can establish but like doing that you can do that at 5 to 5 or 10 or 20 customers um i get i like to ask people when we when we're pitching for work i'm sure as you do too where they say oh we need to talk to 200 people and you say well why <laughs> what well it's like do you realize how long that will take you probably do you just realize how expensive that one, is
0: but you know it's finding that one good one yeah. that's really the yeah. trick.
1: that's that's <laughs> right um but but at the same time they're like oh we need to really trust the the thing that comes the the data mm-hmm. you say well do you know how many people need to be um, are surveyed when they talk about the preferred prime minister or, or two-party preferred results? And you see it on the news or in the newspaper. Should you read a newspaper? Yeah. And um, clients will say, or people will say to me, "Oh, you know, 10,000 10, people." And I say to them, "Are you sure? There's 24 million people in Australia." How many people need to be surveyed? So you could say, you know, 51% prefer this person and 49% prefer that other person. And they go, oh, yeah, probably not 10,000, maybe 5,000. And you go, it's probably 1,000 people for the most reliable of those kind of surveys. And they go, oh. And I say, well, that's you know, that's for $24 million people, probably 16 million voters or something yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, why do you need us to talk to one fifth as many people about your products that has 10,000 customers mm-hmm. to to make a, a decision? Mm-hmm. And the decision you're trying to make is not that high stakes, like we could go lower.
0: Like um, yeah, we can probably go lower. Um,
1: or um, the other time clients have are comfortable with making decisions around numbers, but don't really have a good reason why they like the number they like is yeah. things like NPS or customer satisfaction, mm-hmm. which uh, let's let's leave the weird calculations involved in NPS aside. Um, those numbers, like that's a, a a big question would you recommend this to someone sure and so you can't use the outcome of that to make a design choice because (laughs) because what does it do about is the button in the right spot does the language work for people Um, was the completion time okay did people find the answer they wanted and so customers who have that who want to use that as input to design Mm -hmm. are confusing the granularity of measure with the the outcome they're trying to use it to to drive towards. And so you have to be able to have that conversation with with people as well. It's like that's a that you can use that number to understand something, but you can't use that number to understand this something.
0: The nice thing about NPS as an example or customer satisfaction ratings mm. as as examples is that they can be mm. delivered with Wonderful precision. You can have many, many decimal places, many decimal, as many decimal places as you want um, to represent the precise number um, of your customer satisfaction index without learning anything um, about anything that you might do as a result. <laughs>
1: How many how how likely are you? I got one about PowerPoint in PowerPoint the other day. Okay. <laughs> That's good. There was an NPS it was an NPS question. I booted PowerPoint up and it 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 popped up uh, would you recommend PowerPoint? You know, zero to ten, please tell us why. It was like this is fortunately I could dismiss the box without typing anything into it. But it was like, this is a weird spot to ask me this question. Um, yeah, mm. but um, I read a, fan, a fascinating book the other week mm. called The Institutional Revolution by I will look up the guy's name, um, and it is of all things, it is a work of um, uh, economic history and sociology. Wonderful by Douglas W. Douglas W Allen who is an economic historian okay. and he's trying to explain why um, if you are familiar with Jane Austen or works of that era mm-hmm. um, someone will in those books someone will often buy a commission as an officer in the army okay and it's like well that seems weird don't how why are they buying their way in to be a a lieutenant or a captain or something and he sort of fixated on that and he's like yeah why is that what's up with that what's going on and it's pre-industrial revolution and his argument and he is a an academic and it's got i finished the book and i in kindle i still had uh 30 percent left and it was just references and the wow. notes. um so it's all it's all well justified he says it's because before the industrial revolution there was no way to reliably measure things so you couldn't run an institution like the army and know whether your officers were doing what they promised you because there was no mass communication, there was no directed communication. So the way to establish and maintain that that trust and that ability to delegate authority was to have a different kind of incentive. And so if you bought in, your incentive was different. And so the army is one example. And then he, ta- then he contrasts the British army with the British navy because they sure. couldn't buy a commission as a naval officer. Um, and then he contrasts it with things like the diary of Samuel Pepys, which maybe some people are familiar with or have read, in that he's forever talking about um, getting a bribe from someone. And it sounds shocking, but it's like, his his day-to-day business as like secretary of the navy or something is to basically take bribes from people to to make the wheels of commerce in the 16 late 1600s work (laughs) and uh this guy says like that's how things had to work because there was no way to know like if you had a contract with someone to deliver you uh a hundred cows you couldn't just go to tender for that because there's too much variability in those things you had to have a relationship with someone they had to you know demonstrate some skin in the game by greasing your palm to do this thing it's like oh okay wow. so then wow. the industrial revolution then that required more accurate measurement of mechanical things that led to ways to measure worker performance <laughs> yeah so you couldn't have a salary. There's no such thing as a salaried job in the 1600s. You, no. You had this, um, right? So you, if you worked for a factory, you couldn't work eight hours a day. You showed up whenever because there were no clocks. You did some amount of work and then you left when the sun went down. Accurate clocks, accurate counting of what people made in factories where that was a thing you had to take care of. Suddenly that could lead to the eight-hour day because then you could have an agreement about how long should you work? How much should you produce? And so this is really interesting because in business, one reason clients want numbers is because they want to trust the outcome of what you've done for them. Hmm. And if you're coming in as a consultant, especially a design researcher or something like that, you say, trust me, I spoke to some small number of your customers. It feels like an arcane process. They need often to continue living with the results of what you've done long after you've left the building. Yep. And they need a way not just to trust that what you've done for them is right, they need a way to establish trust within the, their reporting chain and within their organisation that what they got you to do should be trusted by the organisation as a thing to make decisions. Just, and organisations
0: trust numbers. Which is nuts because there's nothing inherently trustworthy about a measurement. No. Nothing at all. No. 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 Um.
1: But, like, that's, that's a great shaggy dog story. It's like, let me tell you about why you have to buy commission as a captain in Edwardian, Dang. England, and it actually leads to, like, this is why. We're gonna, but I have another step beyond that. This is why government likes those big consulting firms is because the thing that they get them to do is not measurable mm. oftentimes. So they have that alternate measure of trust. And it's like having that patronage model or that um, uh, aristocratic model. It's like, yeah. I trust you because you're of the same high social class as me. And yeah. we have skin in the game of maintaining that class structure.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so we believe that what you do for it, what I trust you as a person because you are the same as me. And so that's where like that things like i get these i'm sure you get these too steve that's like so and so big consulting firm has just won another 40 million dollar contract with government to do something and you're like what's up with that and it's like oh it's a different kind of trust model than
0: we uh, i I, I remember being told by a government department having having lost piece of work to a large consulting firm and and the reason that they gave Mm. because we we obviously asked for feedback you know like where did we where did we go wrong where we fall short like all of that kind of stuff and they they basically said this is going to be a large high profile piece of work you are a very good small company and we will roll over you and grind you into dust But they'll survive. <laughs> that that big company <laughs> would survive. They can take a few punctures from uh, punches from the likes of us, whereas we will grind you into the dirt. Um, and I don't want to do that to you, Steve. <laughs> like thanks, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess that's kind of you. Thank you. Yeah. It was it was I mean, a weird I, one. I, my
1: reaction to that would have been like I, my, I would have been like, I would have liked the chance to be crying, ground into the dust, yeah. to be honest.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it would have turned out better for all of us. I don't know. Uh, Maybe there's something wrong with your models if okay. now you engage with outside firms or, you know, yeah. we can talk that through, That's, but okay. <laughs> I think that is like government
1: as an institution existed in that, Wardian pre-industrialized period that, yep. that the book is talking about. Mm. And I think at the very high levels, and if it sounds like that scale of project would have been by someone who is at that sort of head of yeah. level, yep. um, their model of trust is is different to if you go and work for like a banker or an insurer, yeah. where... You're probably not dealing with the head of the bank to do design research. You're probably down in the in the pixel mines. Um, they are their model of trust is based on like an engineering model or a, a pure business model that that comes out of you know modern study in university. And yeah. so they will have that. I trust numbers. I need to know how the number was made. Why I should trust this number instead of some other number, and then I will listen to everything else you say. Whereas at those really high levels in in a, a pre-industrialised environment like government, um, sometimes the model of trust is different. And it's that really that ability to keep, re, keep re-prosecuting why something should be trusted in government that those level of people want. Because mm-hmm. a, an engagement for us, a long engagement for us in government might be three or six months a long project in government could be 10 years and i've been on six month projects in government uh departments where three weeks in someone high up wants to re-prosecute the existence of the project in its entirety and what i thought when i was working on you know we were this is in the before times embedded in a whole floor of a government building suddenly most of the day, that whole floor was empty because all of those people were in hair on fire meetings about, we have to find these emails and these approvals and redo this presentation up to the ministerial level to re-argue for this thing that has been signed off up to the ministerial level, that it should continue existing because someone went, wait a second, what's this about?
0: And um, that's, that's been wonderful. Um I, I look forward to uh, hearing more about it and hearing more of these stories at Design Research. Um, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a good math story, as you as you well and truly know, and I, I, I look forward to hearing more. Great. Thanks,
1: Steve. I look forward to seeing everyone at Design Research this year.
0: All right. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you soon.